You ready for God's word? Learning is a complex thing. Oftentimes, the the course of learning, the basic course of learning flows something like this. Good teachers do this. Explanation, illustration, application. That's how good teaching usually takes place. You explain it, you illustrate it, and then you try to apply it personally. Today I'm going to reverse that flow a little bit. I'm not going to explain first, I'm going to illustrate first. Okay? So go ahead and roll, play the music. You guys know this song, right? Some of the older people know it. And younger people should know it. So it's a classic, right? Recorded in 1963. Who knows who it is? Come on now. Who said it? Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. Now, listen, here comes the chorus. This is the important part. You can move a little bit. There it is. What's he saying? Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? All right, guys, bring that down. That's the title of this morning's sermon. Now, do you know what that song means at all? I know the song. But I never read the lyrics to really understand the song. He's asking a question. Can I get a witness? A witness for what? What's he want a witness for? I'll explain the song to you. He is in love with a woman. And she ain't loving him back. He's saying he's pouring out all his energy, all his love. He's sick at night, laying in bed, thinking about her, wondering what she's doing. And he's feeling like it's not being reciprocated. And so he's calling on basically other ladies to serve as a witness. This isn't how love is supposed to work. Can I get a witness? I'm being treated poorly I'm pouring my love out, and I'm getting a hostile reaction. Can I get a witness? If you remember last week, we began to dive into Jesus' self-defense, a legal defense for the radical claims that he was making about who he is and the hostility, the hostile reaction that he was getting. And so what he does now is he calls forth the witnesses. He's going to bring witnesses, key witnesses, into the courtroom to defend the claims that he's made that he is the son of God. Can I get a witness? Jesus is making some big claims. Do you remember we talked about those big claims last week? He made three big claims. One, that he's equal with God. Two, that he has the power to give life. 
And the third claim was that he has the authority to judge. So he was making these claims. These are staggering claims. We talked about last week. If they're true, we, if they're true, we can't remain neutral about Jesus. That's how we end it. If these claims are true, we can't remain neutral. These staggering claims of Christ challenge us. A challenge to our hearts, a challenge to our minds. And these staggering claims raise the strong question of whether he has the right to make them. If Jesus is who he says he is, then what does this have to do with me? Now, to defend his claims, how will Jesus make his first move? That's what we're going to read here, okay? Can I get a witness? Starting in verse 31 and finishing the chapter in verse 47. Let's read God's word. This is Jesus talking. If I alone, here's, here's something you could do. Uh, if you have a little pen or a piece of paper, every time you see the word witness, underline it. Every time you see the word testimony, underline it. We'll count them up. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Lord, bless the preaching of your word. I began with a question. To defend, to defend his claims, how will Jesus make his first move? 
His first move is this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. What? What did he just say? If I alone, Jesus said, bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. That's a startling statement. Because if there's anyone in the world that could bear witness about himself, it's God. Why would he say that? There's all kinds of scriptures that I could, pe- that I could point to all over where Jesus bears witness about himself without qualification. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father but by me. He says, all those I am statements, I am the bread of life. I am the, the Lamb of God. I, he makes statements over and over. We could, we could make a list of probably thousands of statements that the Scriptures make about Christ that are unqualified and they are authoritative and true. So why would Jesus say, if I bear witness about myself, my witness is not true? He's speaking here in a legal context. He was agreeing that his testimony about himself was not legally valid in a trial setting unless it was verified or corroborated by other sources. In other words, Jesus is submitting himself to the the courtroom legal proceedings of the day. I was recently at the bank with my wife, and we were our line, We had a, a home equity line of credit, and we had it for like 10 years, and then it expires after a while, and so we wanted to re-up our line of credit. We had to go to the bank and reapply. And so I went there to sign off on the legal documents. And most of the time when you're signing off on these things, there's a place where I sign, Kenneth W. Lynch, Jr., and I sign underneath that. Then there's another spot on the other side of the paper that says there for a witness to sign. And what if I just signed Kenneth W. Lynch, Jr., and then I just went over and signed witness Kenneth W. Lynch, Jr.? I don't work. I can't legally bear witness to my own action. I needed someone else to confirm that I was the the who that had signed on the first line. That's what Jesus meant. Does it make sense? However, Jesus is not without some corroborating witnesses. He's going to give us four. So if you're a note taker, you got four. Jesus is going to provide four witnesses. As he defends himself against the accusations, he begins to call forth witness after witness who will support his testimony. Witness number one, John the Baptist. Remember him from the beginning of the gospel. Verses 33 through 35. You sent to John. He's referring to John the Baptist. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. There is only one human witness called that Jesus calls to defend his claims about himself. Only one. 
He calls him as his first witness, John the Baptist. What a guy. And John the Baptist is someone that would have been in favor with the religious leaders. That's why Jesus says you were, he was like a shining light and you received heat from it. And you, you went to experience it and you enjoyed that light for a while. They were prepared to enjoy it. He was respected by the religious leaders of the day. Jesus calls him forth as a witness, John the Baptist. There's a, I was reading about a, a famous theologian, Karl Barth, and he was so enamored with the life and ministry of John the Baptist that he had a painting by a famous painter that he kept in his office. And he often looked at it. This is a man who wrote a lot about the scriptures and commentary on the scriptures. And he often looked up at that picture of John the Baptist. Do we have that, guys? I'll give it. There it is. I don't know. If, if that was at Home Goods, would you buy it? He often looked at it and he thought about the life of John the Baptist. But what caught him, what struck him the most was this. I wonder what he's pointing to. Well, if you could get a blow out of the rest of the painting, you'd see that he's pointing to Jesus on the cross. John the Baptist spent his life, poured out his life, everything that he did, everything that he said, he must increase. I must decrease. He saw his life as being privileged to be spent for Jesus. I wonder if we feel that way. Do you see that as a privilege of bearing witness to Jesus? Wesley said, happy with my latest breath, even to cry in death, behold the Lamb. And John the Baptist wasn't always in the light. Jesus says he was in the light for a while. You know what happened to him though, right? You know, his commitment to pointing to Jesus cost him. He wasn't always in the light. He died in, a, in Herod's dark dungeon with his head removed very violently. 
but he loved Jesus. And though I don't want to go out the way he did, I'll bet he knew a communion with Jesus that few of us know. Trial does that. Persecution will do that. Giving witness to Jesus in the sense of pointing to him is the privilege of every disciple. You feeling that as privilege? We don't always feel that as privilege. Giving witness is not something we feel always privileged to do. It's something we feel burdened to do. It's something we feel guilty about. Giving witness to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and sharing the good news, the good news. If it's good news, it should be a privilege. When you have good news, you call your friends. When you have good news, you put it on Instagram. When you have good news, no one has to tell you. Why don't you tell somebody? Why is it? That when we think about Jesus and the privilege it is to, to having our lives point to him in light of all that he's done for me. This is a great privilege if it's thought about rightly. You're quiet. Here's what I'm thinking about and we'll move on to the next witness. We should think, church about what our life points to. John the Baptist is pointing to Jesus. What, does our what do our lives point to? Ben and Jay's lives are pointing to something, pointing to someone. They're making sacrifices that indicate their love for Jesus. What do, what do our lives, what does our attitude in life point to? What do our Google searches point to? What does our checkbook and the way we spend our money point to? Could someone look at your Google searches and say, there's a follower of Jesus? Could someone look at your checkbook and say, whoa, it's all pointing to Jesus? Could someone look at your hobbies and say, Jesus? Could someone, now, don't misunderstand me, guys. I'm talking about these things in a very joyful sense. I'm not talking about like this duty, like I can never do anything fun. No, that's not what I'm saying. In fact, I, I could never say that because Jesus is the one who gives us life and joy. So I'm talking about and when we're experiencing joy and life here on earth, is there a sense in which what we do, think, believe, act points to Jesus? That's a good question to think about. That's witness number one, John the Baptist. Let's move to witness number two. Witness number two we find in verse 36. But the testimony, Jesus says, that I have is greater than that of John for the works. Te witness number two, Jesus calls them forth his miracles. His miracles serve as a weightier witness than John's. They encompass. When Jesus talks about his miracles, he's talking about the thing that he just did at the pool of Bethesda. He's talking about turning water into wine. He's talking about the healing of the official son, 
We've just been working through these things. He's talking about those things, but he's talking about more than that. He's talking about every miracle that he ever did, which includes his death on the cross for, for all sinners who would put their trust in him. He pays the penalty for our sins. And then he dies and is raised again on Easter Sunday, which we're going to be celebrating in a few weeks together. Jesus is talking about all of those things. The miracles of Jesus embrace the whole unending, world-transforming work of the risen Lord as he moves on through the ages among the nations. What's he doing? The, the miracles of Jesus talk about how Jesus is saving He's renewing, he's healing, he's liberating, he's inspiring, he's lifting, he's changing, he's comforting, he's directing, he's guiding. That's the miracle power of Jesus to transform everything about you. Do you feel that? Have you experienced the transforming power, Jesus' miracle working power in your life? I hope you will. I hope you do because he's making all things new. Hasn't he done this, church? Hasn't his miracle working power done a work in you? Hasn't he changed the way you think? Hasn't he renewed you? Hasn't he changed your whole outlook on life? Hasn't he given you hope where you didn't have any? Hasn't he liberated you? Hasn't he inspired you? Hasn't he energized you? Hasn't he given you purpose? Isn't he guiding you now? He's doing all these things by his miracle working power in each of you. Amen? The Father has set his seal of approval on the works of Jesus, the miracles of Jesus. That's witness number two. So we've got John the Baptist. We've got the miracles. What's his third witness? Witness number three. We see this in verses 37 and 38. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So who's the third witness, church? The Father. This isn't trick stuff. You can get this. The Father has borne witness. Now, you might in some sense say that the Father is a witness that has been manifest all throughout. But it, it is worth noting that Jesus does call out the Father as one who has borne witness about him. It says... The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. Evidently, the people that he was speaking to weren't there at his baptism when John the Baptist baptized him and the dove settled on him. You remember this story, right? And then something happened when that, when that was taking place. Everyone that was there heard something. Church, does anybody know what was heard? The voice, yeah. It was the, vo the audible voice of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. They must not have heard that. They must not have been present for that because Jesus says you didn't hear that. But Jesus is calling forth the Father as a witness to the claims that he is indeed the Son of God. Last week I was telling you about how my dad had a way, has a way of saying things. I thought of another one that, that, that illustrates this point. He used, to, he used to say something like this. He would say, 
Mom said it, we believe it, and that settles it. Mom said it, we got to believe it, and that settles it. Now, this was not said in an endearing way. This was a sarcastic remark. What my dad was saying is, hey, end of story. Mom just told us the way it's going to be. That's the way it's going to be. Mom said it. We believe it. And that's the end of story. It's not a bad rule. I hear moms giggling. They wishing they had a little bit of that. That saying, though, was taken from somewhere. My dad always, he was influenced by things. That was actually taken from a song that we sung at church. We went to this little fundamentalist Baptist church for a little while, and we sang a song that, I can't remember the tune, but it went something like that. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. But I think there's something intrinsically wrong about that song. I love when I see all of your eyes. Like, what's wrong with that song? I love that song. I think there's something incredibly arrogant about that song. I think there's something stupid about that song. And I think it should be revised. God said it, and that settles it. It doesn't matter whether I believe it or not. It doesn't matter whether you believe it. If God said it, that's it. Over. If God Almighty opens his holy mouth and declares something, we don't need another witness. It's over. It's settled. So we won't spend a lot of time on application there. It's over. It's settled. That's the third witness. So what do we got so far? John the Baptist. We got the miracles. We've got the Father. And then we've got his final key prize witness. You say, whoa, more than the Father? Well, he reserves this witness for last. You don't have his word, verse 38, abiding in you, for you don't believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures. It is they that bear witness about me. Who's Jesus' final witness in the courtroom of his self-defense of the claim that he is the Son of God? The scriptures. Key witness number four, the scriptures. Now Jesus says, stick with me for a few more minutes and we're going to return to worship. But Jesus says something very interesting to these religious leaders. He tells them, how does he say it in ESV? He says, you search the scriptures. The NIV actually captures, I think, the language of you diligently study the scriptures. So Jesus is not taking them to task on whether they actually study the scriptures or not. Church, do you want to get scared? (laughs) Say yes. (laughs) No, you don't. (laughs) This section of scripture scares me. Because this is a group of people who diligently search the scriptures 
and spend more time studying the scriptures than I'll bet we do. Jesus says they diligently search the scriptures. But then he says, you don't know me. That scares me. Because that means that people who spend time, religious people who spend time in the Father's house, can actually search the scriptures and not see Jesus, reject Jesus, hostile towards Jesus. You wrestling with that? Their study of scripture is unfruitful because the student is not looking for Jesus. It's not the scriptures alone. It's not mastery at the literary level of the scriptures that will give any person life. It's the scriptures that point to Jesus. He's the one that gives life. I think a lot of us, even in these days, we think that we've got to work hard spending our lives defending the Bible because the Bible could, could all of a sudden be rendered obsolete. Can I just put your fears at rest? Bible going to be fine. It's God's word. Should we seek to defend it? Yes. Somebody asked Spurgeon once, Won't, aren't you worried that the Bible needs defense? And he said, defend the Bible? I'd as soon defend a lion. He doesn't need me. <laughs> Scripture is God's word. And it's going to accomplish the purpose for which it's been sent. The danger here, though, is what I've already said. That you could be close to the Father's house. You could read your Bible and not see Jesus. Jesus insists that there's nothing intrinsically life-giving about the study of the Scriptures. If you fail to discern their primary purpose and intent. And all of Scripture is either reflecting on the work of Jesus or pointing towards the work of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We need to read our Bible as if it's all about Jesus. You need to read your Bible and look for Jesus. Now imagine for a moment standing at the Grand Canyon. I've never done that. How many of you have ever stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon? There's probably a lot of you. So I'm not as well-traveled as you. I've seen pictures of the Grand Canyon, and it looks amazing. And people have gone and told me it's like a breathtaking and awe-inspiring experience. Now, just imagine, those of you that have done it, those of you that haven't, you imagine with me. Imagine we were standing and looking out at the vast, majestic creation, the Grand Canyon. And you know those, what do they call those things that you can, uh, when you go to a site and you want to be able to see further away, they're like these big lenses. You know what I'm talking about? They, that you put a coin in and then it opens up and you can see further. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, they're telescopic lenses or something. You can look into them. I never use them. They seem corny to me, but maybe they're good. Um, but 
But imagine there was one of them right there, and I put a quarter in, and I began to look through it. And I'm just taking in creation. And imagine if off to my right, I spot a, a little man, and he begins to tell me, boy, that is an incredible lens that you're looking through. And I say, what? That lens that you're looking through, isn't it majestic? Isn't it amazing? And then what if he started shining it up and just saying, look at the construction of this lens. Look at how it moves. Look at how the engineering of this thing and how it moves. You know what? And then maybe he takes his pen knife out and he says, I'm going to scrape a little bit of it off and I'm going to send it for some chemical analysis. And, and, and when I discover, when, when, I make my, when I get this analysis back and we make this amazing discovery about this particular lens, if you'll give me your name and number, I'll send you uh, a report of my analysis, of the lab's analysis. You would say, what in the world are you talking about? He has missed, right, the whole purpose of the lens. The lens isn't amazing in and of itself. It's amazing because it functions to help you to see something that is amazing. It helps you to see more clearly the beautiful realities of God's creation. So the Bible is a lens that we look through that helps us to see the beautiful realities of Jesus Christ. We should immerse ourselves in the Bible, church. I have another illustration, and I'm going to kill that, and I'm going to share one last thought. Why did they miss? Let's ask that question. Well, how could they read their Bibles and miss Jesus? It was because of their will. Theirs was a religion of merit. They took the God's law and then they added to God's law. And they told people that that's what they had to do. That's why they've got a problem with the guy getting healed on the Sabbath. He's working on the Sabbath. He's breaking. The, see, they made all these laws. They lived to impress one another. That's why they say, that's why Jesus says, I'm not like you guys. I don't live for the glory of people. I don't live for the glory of another. I live for the glory of the Father. Their fundamental failure lay in esteeming human praise above God's praise. Do you ever do that? This explains their strange defense of their finer points of the law. They're beefing with Jesus because he doesn't obey their laws. But they esteem someone who comes and says they obey all of the Pharisaic laws. They, they pump him up. They lift him up. He gets esteem but not Jesus. This was a thoroughly human religious system that permitted no real place for the living God. In Jesus, they met the absolute demands of the Almighty, lifting them beyond the abilities of human merit and summoning them to, summoning them to cast themselves upon grace. But this was beyond them. I pray it's not beyond you. I pray that you will not 
trust in what you, you, the religious system that you build to attain and merit your own salvation, but that you would cast yourselves in, cast yourselves in need upon Almighty God and the grace that he offers through Jesus. If you can do If you can do your version of Christianity without any help from Jesus, if you can do your version of your religion apart from Jesus, then it's nothing more than your religion. It's worthless. That's what the Bible says. So I want to ask this question. When was the last time you cried out for help that your life would point to Jesus? If you're not asking God for any help, then you must have some kind of system that you've built that you can achieve it on your own. And church, I'm afraid of that for myself. I'm afraid of it for you. I'm afraid of it for the church in America. I think maybe God's shaking things up and helping us to see that we, well, I can't do this on my own. I can't lead this church without God's strength. I can't pastor. I can't preach. I can't be a good father. I can't be a good husband. I can't live for Jesus. I can't live, pursue a holy life, be out of, out of love and devotion for Jesus apart from praying. That's why Jesus taught us to pray. Pray that God would lead you away from temptation and deliver you from evil. When's the last time you said, God, please deliver me. Don't lead me into temptation, God. Deliver me from evil. J.C. Ryle says, you've never prayed until you attach deliver me from evil to your prayers. That's what Jesus taught us to pray. Church, are you helpless? Are you crying out to God to do the things that you can only do if he helps you? We can't do the Christian life on our own. We can't merit it. We can't save ourselves. We're desperate for Jesus. I pray that the Spirit of God would move in such a way upon all of us, at home, downstairs, here, that we would see how much we need Jesus. And then that we would cry out to him, that we would pray more, pray more and point, pray more and point, pray more and point. Point to what? To Jesus. I pray that he would so fill us with his Spirit that our lives would point to Jesus that your fingers would be long and stuck out like John the Baptist and your whole life would point to Jesus. Ban, please come up. So when the question of Jesus' identity came up, four key witnesses came forth. Who are they, church? John the Baptist, the miracles, the Father, and scriptures. If that's not enough to convince people, what is? You cannot remain neutral about Jesus. Will you affirm his testimony or will you reject it?